I first met Nick Stone in 2015. I was 25 and working at a startup, and he was in the early stages of scaling his new coffee business, Bluestone Lane. We were exploring ways to collaborate, and he gave me a tour of his first ever location. It was a tiny spot inside a dark office building in Midtown East, opportunistic, and I think is an appropriate representation for how he thinks about his business. A small piece of real estate where he was undoubtedly paying a low amount of rent where there was a high density of foot traffic, but as an individual business, I'm sure it was highly profitable. Immediately there were things that stuck out to me about Nick. While his startup was a coffee business and was still at an early stage, the way he spoke about it made it feel consequential. He felt consequential. At that stage of my career, I was far more charisma than experience, but Nick treated me like an equal, as though I had as much to offer to the conversation as he did. And that's a quality that's incredibly rare in the world of business, especially in New York City. And it's something I haven't forgotten to this day, and something I try to apply in my life. It's been really fun watching Bluestone Lane grow from just a few locations when we first met to now over 50 and a growing household name across America. In my conversation today, we cover a lot, and he is candid and honest and open about challenges during this time, but he also reflects on what it was like to build the brand to what it is today. His passion for his company and his employees is undeniable. His optimism is undeniable, and I think you might be surprised by some of the ways that his business has evolved in the wake of COVID-19. This is one of those episodes that you record and then you listen back and enjoy it as though it was recorded by somebody else. I think that there's a lot to learn from the nuggets he gives. So please step back, relax, and enjoy. Let me kind of jump in really quick. So for those very few people listening that don't know, quickly tell us about Bluestone Lane and answer the question sort of when you started this, why bring another coffee shop into the world, especially in America where we seem to have one on every block? When you first started it, what made you feel like this would be a, a fun, interesting business to start? Well, I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and Australian coffee culture, very, very different. It's the land of independence. So you don't have the mass chains there. It's the 13th biggest economy in the world, and it's the market where Starbucks failed. Uh, there's no Duncan, there's no Tim Hortons, there's no Coffee Bean, there's no Pete's. It's land of independence and it's particularly sophisticated. It's not just orientated around coffee, it's around particularly espresso-based coffee, premium espresso, sophisticated yet accessible healthy food. And it's very much focused around being part of a culture in which people socialise, connect, feel recognised at their local we don't really have just, it's a coffee shop. Let's just go to a coffee shop. People talk about it as, let's go to my local. And there's a distinct difference between being a customer and a local. Lo local's reciprocal. There's advocacy on both sides. Typically, the local knows the proprietor and the operator, feels good. It's part of their daily ritual. And in turn, the operator has invested in the relationship, so knows the local's name, face, order, and there's that reciprocity and that intangible connection that makes it feel like it's necessary part of the daily ritual. And it's a way in which you get recognized uh, affiliation connection. And I just thought that there's a huge opportunity because Starbucks is so successful, the most successful, in my opinion, quick serve in history, 40,000 stores, 
40% of all coffee shops in America are Starbucks. Can you believe that? 40% of Starbucks. And I think through their own success and probably ambitions, I felt the experience was deeply, deeply commoditized, that it wasn't personalized, that the product was very inferior. It was consistent. I thought it was consistently mediocre. The food was all processed. Everything came in frozen. Nothing was healthy. There was healthy looking fruit labels on things, but they had very poor nutritional qualities. And I just felt that there's this need for this more independent premium model. And I could recognize that the customers whose parents had gone to Starbucks and they were being introduced to this culture of human connection and cleaner eating and premiumization thought, wow, I don't want to go to Starbucks. It's too accessible. It's too common. It's too mediocre. And let's be really brutally honest here. Starbucks is not cheap. It's, no. It's not like a, a, a low-cost, you know, high-value strategy. Most of Starbucks drinks are more expensive than Bluestone Lane, despite Bluestone Lane spending probably three to four times the amount on quality. And so I just thought that there's this opportunity here with this underserved customer. It's very similar to what my wife and I are looking for. So let's start. There must be a, a way to service them. And you know, a lot of it was born out of the need for self-fulfillment to a degree. And I had worked in banking for 10, 11 years, primarily working with clients on how they grow, manage risk and refining their capital structure. And a lot of that's linked to the value proposition, like how they're going to compete, what's their strategy, what are the variables, um, how do they generate a return on their capital, stuff like that. And um, I also was a professional football before that for six years, so very focused and loved being part of high-performance teams. And I just could see some thematics. I thought that, you know, the office buildings due to technology, due to greater understandings around flexibility and now obviously work from home and co-working, some of these thematics, I thought you're going to get a lot more intelligent about real estate and uh, landlords are going to have to think about like how do they keep and attract, fill vacancies and keep tenants in, attract better quality tenants, hopefully to pay more rent. I thought this, it's got to be an amenity here. And coffee is such a great amenity. And, and in the best buildings in Melbourne and Sydney, the premium sort of cafe coffee shop in the lobby is the most social area of the entire building. It's where so much business, so much commerce is conducted over coffee because it's in a neutral venue. It's not in an asymmetric venue in someone's boardroom or the client's boardroom. It's friendly. It's open. And in business, typically, and particularly when I was working in advisory, like the best thing is like all you're looking for is a client to give you the most information they can so that you can work on a more informed solution. And that's what coffee sort of brings out. It brings out a little bit more of this social, relaxed, there's just more disclosure. And then I thought the final sort of big push was definitely in addition to that need to be a local and recognition community, and then it's the amenity on the real estate play, is I thought Australia is going to be at the pinnacle of this lifestyle movement. There's a few factors. One, the fact that Australia is a huge country, size of the US, but has a population smaller than Texas. It is the premium food bowl for Asia Pacific, and the growth engine of the world is clearly Asia Pacific. The best meat, the best fruits, the best wine is all coming from the best milk powder and dairy products are all coming from Australia and New Zealand. And I just thought Australia's a bit elusive and a bit mysterious to Americans. Like it's one of those things that all my American friends, I ask them, like, do you want to go to Australia? Oh, I, I, I can't wait to go. It's on my bucket list. Okay. 
So when do you think you have you been, or when do you think you're going to go? Oh, I have no idea. It's it's too far. It's too far. I can't go there. So I think there's that bit of elusiveness, and Australians are very nomadic. That's why they've plundered and arrived in in uh, New York and LA and these places. And I think they're very like Aussies are pretty damn resourceful, and they're used to um, being a long way away and figuring it out in a very pragmatic and a very direct but social way. And um, I thought there's a way here that Australia's going to have this sort of time in the sun. Australia's never been closer than the US. And I could see, you know, like the, the biggest online fitness uh, instructors and Australian female. I, I could see like these Australian resort wear brands. I could see Australian sort of skincare brands. I could just see this movement towards better for you, cleaner, more focused on this lifestyle. And I thought Bluestone's got to be a part of this. It needs to be a part of where people start their day looking forward to walking in and being recognized, having a premium quality product, you know, having a terrific atmosphere and feeling like a local. And sure enough, it started with one and uh, six and a bit years later, you know, we've opened uh, maybe 55 stores across eight markets and here we are. That must have been your plan from the outset to do all of those things at scale because there's a huge amount of local coffee shops that are Aussie owned and run, especially in New York. But when you first started it, it sounds like you were thinking about Starbucks and some of the things that you could maybe take from Starbucks that were uh, that are positives and then reinvent the things that weren't as great. And the obvious thing about Starbucks is consistency, right? You said, even if it's consistently mediocre, customers put a huge premium on no matter where I am, I know what I'm getting. And so to have that be the case, I would imagine scale was part of the original plan. So you're spot on. So Starbucks are so good because they've nailed two things. They've nailed consistency and they've nailed convenience. So the fact that they have every corner means that they're the most convenient. And when people get coffee, particularly during work, they're time poor. And it's a very convenient option and it's expedited and it makes a lot of sense. And that's why they've continued to invest in making it go faster and faster. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so much investment in the app, so much investment in order ahead, so much investment in taps to really expedite that process. And then the second point is brand. You can't be a brand unless you're consistent. You can't go to an Hermes store and buy a $10,000 bag looks beautiful and then go to the Hermes store in Tokyo and the brag has scratches on it and the class doesn't work. The best brands consistently deliver in their value proposition and you have a sense of uniformity. So that is the biggest challenge to anyone scaling. And with us, it's so reliant on the human connection element. Now, it might be less so given COVID, the impact of COVID, and I think people are going to be more focused on fulfillment rather than connection. But I could be wrong. It could be a reversion because we've been stifled from real human to human contact. But that is our biggest challenge. You know, how do you go to our store in Toronto or one of our stores in Toronto and have the same experience as you do in Philadelphia? That is the biggest challenge. And it's really hard to do that while still retaining the sense of aspirational premium elements and what we describe as the need to achieve boutique at scale and um, there are a lot of brands trailblazing and pulling it off and we see we take great inspiration from them but you know when we started the business or when I you know I founded it I really thought this was an opportunity to get to say 10 stores I thought we could get to 10 I didn't necessarily have ambitions of getting to 50. I just thought it could get to 10 in New York 
And I thought it could be highly profitable. I didn't think as much about building a brand where the brand would be significantly bigger than the business. And that's the case where it is right now. Yeah, you know, like I put in place uh, structures and I, and I made decisions that were so orientated around building a true brand. So that continuity, that consistency, that value proposition that's continually refined. And then I thought about the need to do it as part of a team because a team scales. And, you know, I just was very, very observant around and disciplined around what's the customer doing? What are they liking? Where are they spending time? What are they spending on? How do we drive the productivity in store? How do we get the unit economics right? How do we fund ourselves? And I was fortunate to have that financial acumen to steward us through. And that's one advantage that we have had. And the fact that I didn't jump into full-time CEO for the first three and a half years. I bootstrapped mm. it on the side and got it to 12 stores and you know, probably doing 10 million before I jumped full-time three and a half years ago or and we've gone from 12 to 55 from 10 mil to 50 mil yeah that was going to be my next question was can you speak a little bit to the position of the business and the trajectory of the business just prior to covid yeah so this year we'd forecast we were going to do anywhere between 53 and 60 million and still high 40s percent growth rate we're actually off to a great start really good start particularly our uh, events e-commerce business our wholesale is on absolute fire. And um, we were seeing terrific results at the start of March because we brought on a, a SVP of retail in mid-January, tremendously experienced and someone we were, seek, we, were, we were hiring for that position for six months. It took us that long. We looked at so many candidates. But it's probably the most important hire. They're going to own the business. They're going to run the business. They're going to run your retail panel. And for us, retail was 85% of the business. So... We had to get that one right. But he, it took him a while, you know, not a long time. It, it takes you a month to get your feet under the desk and start to work out who's a player and who's not. And he had gone through that process and implemented some changes. And the business was really, really rallying behind him. I think he was winning a lot of trust and uh, there was a lot of excitement. And then out of nowhere, we started getting briefed and the board and our investors started briefing us that COVID could be a really, really significant issue. And then uh, we put, started putting together a plan at the start of March. And then out of the blue, it was uh, yeah, the week of March 10, it just went like that. Yeah. Can you walk me through those stages? Maybe it's 24 hours, maybe it's a week, I don't know. But walk me through the stages of when you first heard about COVID to when you really realized, oh, wow, this is a new, new reality. Yeah. So we started being Matt Higgins who's the co-founder and CEO of RSC Ventures, who's our largest investor, reached out to me at probably the second or third week of February and said, we should start talking about what to do with COVID. And uh, you know, I was like, oh, isn't it this issue in China? You know, is it really an issue where we are? And he's like, yeah, it's going to be a huge issue. And I, I was an ignorant. I just didn't realise that, it could move this fast and impact us so dramatically. Like, who did? What happened was I went to New York uh, and it was the last time I was in New York. I go every second week because uh, I live in Santa Monica now and I flew out on the 9th of March and on the 11th Wednesday, I presented to RSC our phases. And we had phase one through four. 
and there were different measures and different changes to the business. There were changes to the cost structure and people and all the different initiatives. So we had this really good meeting. I think we left with clarity and uh, we agreed at this stage just to implement phase one. That was going to be implemented at the end of that week and it was sort of signed off on 11th. I flew home to LA on the 12th. I felt something's not right. I got the last flight out, landed in Santa Monica. We closed the office. We had exec team meeting on the 13th, 14th and 15th. And we had spoke to the board and investors. And by the Sunday, we implemented uh, phase four. So it went from phase one to phase four in effectively four days. And then we had a board meeting that week after phase four had been implemented on the 17th and we presented the the financial structure and anticipated forecast the next four months and the board's feedback and i guess the what i've been reading is i sense that this is going to be a lot longer this is not turning on a switch we then implemented stage five which was not even on the table that following Sunday, the 22nd, so we worked all that weekend and, you know, it was, it was horrible. It's been heartbreaking. You know, I think it's very hard to explain to people when you're the chief executive uh, that the buck stops with you and you ultimately have got to make these decisions and you're making decisions that impact people's welfare and their, their jobs and it's not pleasant. And I think as the founder too, you're so, you lose so much confidence in yourself and in the business you just are demoralized because so many people have backed you and they've joined the team they've invested you've got suppliers it's harrowing but i realized very quickly once we had made those changes on the 22nd that my sole responsibility as chief executive is to ensure that bluestone remains and can breathe again and everything since that day has been on bluestone must get through this we must weather the store and that is going to take some serious body hits you know you could be in triage for a while but if we do it now there's a good chance we can make it through if we don't there's a huge chance we could get halfway through and be stuck so what was stage five then was it closing all the stores I know that a huge part of your business, and to your point, especially, I wasn't even considering this before our call, but especially because a huge focus of your company is on that human connection and it's a retail play, the, the biggest part of your business is human beings, is staff. You have to have a huge headcount and you have to have those people really care about the business and really care about the customer. So in stage five, what was the impact on your staff? Not emotionally, obviously that was devastating, yeah. More so, did you have to lay everybody off? Did you furlough them first? What was the process from a staffing perspective? Yeah, so you're right. Like We have one of the best teams on the planet. I'm so proud of them. I'm so thankful for what they've done. They've built Bluestone Lane. And the messages that I received from when we opened about how nice your staff are, how pleasant they are, how helpful, uh, they make me feel good. They make me feel important. Uh, so I do very much think that we got that right and we're very, very blessed that we had an amazing board-in culture and it was a very family-orientated feeling. And um, to let hundreds of staff go, um, we decided to make the majority of the team, the vast majority, uh, redundant with severance. We felt like it would be a better play for both the company and the individual to receive severance we agreed to pay out 
well, we made the decision to pay out everyone's sick leave and pay out everyone's PTO, which neither we were required to do other than in California on the PTO side. So we thought, all right, the best thing for me to do is like the money we have now, let's give everyone as much as we can by still ensuring that we can hopefully get through and we paid for everyone's health insurance for another month and thinking that they could bridge into COBRA. Now, we were very fortunate that we made this decision and we uh, a lot of staff impacted, several hundred, and they were able to go on to the enhanced unemployment insurance benefit. So a lot of them, have, they're probably okay, almost neutral from an economic perspective. We decided to try and keep as many stores as possible open because we knew that protected jobs and we knew that that would provide a beacon of hope to the community. The other thing we, we knew was that we will not make any money. And this is another loss-making exercise, but we thought the greater good outweighs the economic cost. The fact that people are cooped up in their apartment, they have a, a chance to have a contactless curbside pickup, it gives them that 30 minutes escape. We thought we need to do it. We need to play our part in these communities and we need to keep some of our talent still employed. Uh, so at this stage, like we probably, we had 52, we probably shut 25 and then we whittled that down when we felt like it just wasn't sustainable staff didn't feel comfortable working there was in the central business districts like san francisco all of our stores there's just nobody and and it's it's not even it wasn't worth staying open because the fact that our staff all got public transport we just didn't feel like it was right so we ended up whittling it sort of down to Right now, it's, I think we've got 14, 12 to 14 stores open in uh, Massachusetts, DC, New York, and LA. And we put in place uh, investments, like we pay for everyone's lift to and from work. We mm. implemented that in, in like two days. Mm. We got very senior lift and said, we need to do this. Or we can't have our team catching public transport. Bang, we paid for that. That was like thousands of dollars that decision that day per week. Then we provided a stipend for everybody tax-free to make sure their internet's right at home, to buy uh, extra clean gear, to buy extra food, what have you. And we did that for everybody that was still in the business. And the lift and most of these things, they went to the retail team. And then um, you know, the corporate team, we had to restructure this because the revenue fell 90%. We just didn't have things to do and we just couldn't handle the cost if we were going to reopen. So a lot of the corporate team got quite lucrative severances based on our policy. We did it at the full rate. Everyone else in the corporate team took a pay cut, a significant pay to everybody. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're just doing whatever we can. Like, it's, I think what we did was not inconsistent with most companies, but because we were a bit larger and because we'd probably managed our capital a little bit better or had greater access to capital, we were able to pay far more severance in totality than a lot of our peers, which seem to have not had the financial resources or elected to not really pay much at all. Um, and that didn't sit well with me. And um, I want people to go out thinking like Bluestone really tried to do whatever they could, put their money where the mouth was, and you know, hopefully they get through and they'll come back. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what, what a just seems like every single day decisions get harder and harder and more emotional as it progressed. It's probably a testament to the board and yourself, obviously, and your leadership team of how seriously you took it early on to head off some of these challenges. One of the things that I'm hearing a lot about is 
it's forcing people to innovate in certain ways and not just from a stopgap perspective, but from a completely transforming their business. Has there been any forced innovation on your side that you think will sustain past this crisis? And sort of with that, are there other silver linings that you see? Obviously, it's difficult to find silver linings in something so so devastating, but has there been any forced innovation that you think you might not have uncovered without this crisis? Yeah, look, first of all, I'm a huge believer that there's tremendous silver linings, both personally and professionally. A lot of people are going to rekindle relationships with their family. They're going to reprioritize. They're going to slow down. On a professional front, you learn a lot about your team. You learn a lot about your exec team. You learn a lot about the culture. You learn a lot about your locals. I've been super impressed by the team that we have and how resourceful, agile, innovative they've been and i think you've realized that wow a lot of people in a big team doesn't necessarily make you more powerful doesn't necessarily make you more valuable it can be sometimes a lot of people in committees can really slow things down and that was what i was really focused on avoiding in because i was exposed to a lot of it in banking and um i've just been super impressed by the speed we pivoted we pivoted all stores to curbside contactless pickup. No one allowed in the store. We did all stores in 24 hours. The only way you could order was on the app, order ahead. The fact that we invested in the order ahead app, the whole campaign was meant to launch in March. We did this huge partnership with Tourism Australia and Luxury Escapes. We're sending two people to Australia for using the app. They go in the trip. They go to Great Barrier Reef. They go to Melbourne. They go to all these places, all paid for, toured by and guided instructions by me and accessing all the people and restaurateurs I know in Australia. And we like had to pull that. And then we launched the app because I didn't want anyone in the store. I didn't want anyone interacting with the customers. I wanted it all order ahead so no one's like waiting around. So it's all scheduled and you know your time. And it's been almost flawlessly executed. Like, you know, yes, I think... People are being more um, patient and empathetic to the situation, but it's been brilliantly executed. We never had a delivery business. We never did delivery. We got on Grubhub, Uber, Postmates, nationally, all three within two weeks. Amazing. Yeah, we made some calls, pleaded our case, asked for prioritization uh, and move up the list because every business was trying to get on delivery. We've learned how to do delivery. We look at it as where we are now, was probably where we were going to end up in three to five years. Everything we're executing now, we've been talking about for 12 to 18 months. We just had never made it a huge priority because retail keeps growing and doubling 50%. And when you're going from 10 to 20, 20 to 40, like you suddenly start thinking, oh, it's all retail, all retail, and these small little projects like e-commerce and delivery, you know, what's the best case? Oh, they're $5 million business, $10 million business. Now let's just focus more on retail and keep doing what's working. Right. But... I think that that has been brilliant, but the technology and the data angle has been dramatically uh, expedited and brought forward. And I think that where we end up in five years is where we're going to be and how we're going to open. And a lot of it is because of government mandates. The fact that, you know, when we eventually open, you know, the occupancy is going to cap to 30 to 50%. And let's be realistic. I don't think there's going to be tremendous demand for people to want to go to restaurants when everyone has to wear a mask and gloves. You know, I just don't see that they will be that comfortable. I think it'll be take time to get used to it. I think there'll be anxiety. And I think people ultimately will say, listen, I love your food. I want your food. I would just prefer to consume it at home. And maybe at that stage, you can consume it at home with 
to other people or for other people. And I can see that really, really emerging. So we've had to think about, well, how's, how's it going to work? What's the tech stack like? How do we still manage some semblance of human connection and personalize? And a lot of these initiatives have been um, from the ground up. We, us team, without any instruction, started writing personalized messages on the top of coffee cups. Uh, you know, like I got one. I'm like, have a great day, Nick. Good to see you in here. You're doing a good job. I was like, yeah. wow, that, that just changed my whole day. Yeah. And I called, I called uh, Andy, uh, head of marketing. I was like, you tell everyone to write messages? And he said, no, but it's amazing, isn't it? And like, yeah. That's that world-class service that I think that we really executed particularly well and that, that's what underpinned our growth. And then we launched what I think has probably given us such a moral, it's solidified our moral compass, which was always pretty strong. And we've had to, and you know, we did a massive campaign with Movember. We did a huge campaign with Australian Bush Vibe. And then now we've got what we call Fuel for Heroes, so we launched dropping coffee, food, and ready-to-drinks uh, in the first three weeks to hospitals. We did drop-offs to 25 hospitals in D.C., New York, Massachusetts, Boston, and uh, L.A. 15,000 coffees we donated. Like, I, I don't know if you've wow. seen some of the images, but the I feedback, have. the notes I received, the LinkedIn messages, the videos, so incredibly powerful and moving. They are the ones that are giving us hope they're the soldiers, their bodies on the line. They're so incredibly selfless, resilient, tough, courageous. We just felt like we've got to do whatever we can. So despite our own economic hardship, we just felt like we had to do more. And that now parlayed into phase two of Fuel for Heroes because we had so many of our locals say, this is amazing. How do I help? How do I, like, can I buy them a coffee? And we said, absolutely. You can shout a coffee. So on our app, when you order flat white or avocado smash, what have you, you've got an option to shout a coffee for $3.50. And when you shout it, we match it 300%. So you buy one, we'll throw in three. And the reason we did that is our gross profit margin, our cost of goods sold on a coffee is about 30%. So we said, I don't want to be seen as profiteering in any way, shape or form from this crisis. So if you spend $3.50, I'll make sure that the profit that we make, excluding cost of goods sold, is reinvested back in another three coffees. And, uh, and we'll pay for the delivery and do it off our own back. Because I was seeing increasingly people saying, yeah, you know, fuel for hero, you know, let's give healthcare workers. And what was it? Oh, a customer buys some a meal. Okay, so what's the business doing? The business matching? No, the business is not matching. The business is dropping off and delivering. I'm like, come on. Like, it's a little bit gray for me. I think you should be matching whatever a customer does. And uh, I thought, no, nah, it's not matching one for one. It's matching one for three. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had a thousand shouts in the first three days. That's incredible. I'm struck by how, you know, I've been doing a, a handful of interviews talking to business owners about how they're reacting to this environment. And one of the things I'm realizing is obviously a business at a time like this juxtaposed against what's happening in hospitals and what healthcare workers are going through and what governments are going through and what underprivileged people are going through pales in comparison. However, businesses like yours are a huge part of the fabric of what makes people feel comfortable in their routines and their communities. And especially when it comes to morning coffee rituals, it's a really profound thing. And so to hear you understand that, I mean, that, that is something that I think people miss right away when you take that out. I miss it. You know, like we wake up and like, that's what we look forward to. That's our walk. We get the kids in the stroller, 
we get our masks, fabric masks, and we walk to Bluestone, we get a coffee and we walk back and it's the sense of normality. It's just so important. Um, we observe the protocols, we keep our distance. And I just think it's vital that we continue to give people hope and provide some semblance of normality that we're going to get through it. And here's something that most people love getting coffee, you know, and they love yeah. walking in and have someone know their name and face. And that's what we've always been about. We've never been about commodity coffee, commodity experience. We've been about personalization. And listen, my background, as you know, prior to this was not in hospitality. I was a customer and I was an unfulfilled customer. And I love brands. I love companies. I love being part of teams. You know, I'm not a particularly good individual sportsman, but, you know, I, I can always contribute in a team and know my role and execute it. And I love being part of a group that feels so empowered that they want to do more. They don't just want to, it's not a job. It's a calling right now. They understand the importance. We don't have any calls out. We don't have any complaints. We don't have anyone coming late. And even if they're late, you know, it doesn't matter. They're doing it because they feel like it's important. It's important for the society. It's important for the communities. And that's given me strength. It's given me resolve that I must do my job as CEO. And, uh, yep, some tough conversation. Yep, some tough decisions. But I can't let anyone down. And the thing I'm trying and the plan I'm executing gives us, in my opinion, the best chance of us to reopen and to bring the business back, to get back to doing what we do really well. Incredible. I, I Two more quick questions. One is, so you started at around 60 locations just under, and now you're down to about 14, somewhere around there. Yeah, 53, and we, we're down to around 14. Yeah, 53 locations down to about 14, operating at revenues, you said, was down 90%. We've grown a little bit. So we were down 90% for the first sort of two weeks when everyone was shell-shocked. Um, we're down about 85 right now. So um, we've clawed it back a little bit, which yeah. is encouraging. But yeah. right now, it's pretty hard. All of our markets are a shelter and home. And our biggest market by mile, 50% of the business is in New York City, right, in office buildings. Um, we don't even have a, you know, really any suburban locations. So it's going to take us a while. But I think realistically... We're going to be in this 80 to 85% down range for the next four to eight weeks. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we can get it under control and people feel more confident. But the reality is it's going to take a while. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, how can we listeners help? How can we participate? Obviously, it sounds like going and donating a coffee when they shop with you is one way. But how else can we support the business? Yeah, I think. Right now, small businesses, whether it's Bluestone Layer or, or anyone else, they need your support. So if you can buy their online stores, whether you can buy curbside contactless, whether you can deliver food to your home, they're all really important initiatives and they are going to help. Small business, undoubtedly, is under more stress than big business and probably under more stress than is anyone in the economy other than maybe airlines. Small business doesn't have access to capital. It's often families that are solely dependent on that income. They've often borrowed a tremendous amount of money to open a business. They're not the landlord. They're very much the operator. If they don't operate, there's nothing coming in. So if you can shop small, I think that's a great initiative. We have our stores open. The product's great. Come and get a coffee and avocado smash. Uh, use our app. It's all contactless. We have um, e-commerce selling by our own website, Amazon, Fresh Direct. Uh, and then obviously the campaign we have, Fuel for Heroes. Um, when you buy a coffee, 
why don't you shout one for a hero? Everywhere we drop off, we provide that communication. We send around the pictures. You are making a difference. But, uh, you know, I want small business to flourish. Economies need small business to survive. They're the biggest employer. The two that dominate everything is just government, which includes military and small business. You know, without small business, you don't have an economy. And you certainly don't have a vibrant cosmopolitan one. The type of vibrancy that, that draws people to live in cities like New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago. So if you can help and if you can prioritize small, it's greatly appreciated by millions and tens and hundreds of millions of people out there. The supermarket CPG guys are doing more than fine, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate you taking the time, man. I'm, it's been so fun watching Bluestone grow over the years. And it uh, sounds like it's going to be a, a slow burn for the next weeks and months, but you'll bounce back. And thanks so much for taking the time today. And I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Look after you, each other. Stay positive. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. See you.